From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. So many of these stories would remain untold if not for groups of people largely led by women who are taught within their own churches to be submissive and not speak up, that these folks that always online and use the internet to expose what was happening within so many of these churches. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to welcome to the show Sarah Stancorp. She's written hundreds of reported articles and essays which have appeared in publications including the Washington Post, the New York Times, Vogue, Mary Claire, Glamour, and Vice. She was born in Youngstown, Ohio, and as a kid, often found escape in books. She studied religion and philosophy at Westminster College and ethics in South Asian religion and history at the University of Chicago's Divinity School. Her beat as a reporter spans religion, politics, gender, and power, but is informed by questions of basic morality. This means investigating wrongdoing. It can mean reporting on how people find their strength to prevail. She lives in Ohio with her husband and two children. Today we're talking about her recent book, Disobedient Women, How a Small Group of Faithful Women Exposed Abuse, Brought Down Powerful Pastors, and Ignited an Evangelical Reckoning. Before we begin the conversation, I want to make sure to note that we will be speaking about more adult themes and some issues that may be disturbing to some listeners, so I do ask for your discretion if younger listeners are tuning in and your own self-care in case any of this might be a trigger for you. I also want to note that, and we may get into this in the conversation as well, Sarah Stancorb has a condition known as spasmodic dysphonia, which does affect the way that her voice sounds. So I would encourage you to listen a little bit more carefully and with some patience and charity as we move into our conversation. Sarah Stancorb, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you. Thanks so much, David. I'd like to start our conversation in a bit of an odd place. And you talk about this in your book, Disobedient Women. You are in junior high. You have been attending a youth group, I believe, at a United Methodist Church, and then you go on a retreat where several youth groups are coming together. And at one point in the evening, one of the nights that you're there, suddenly the pastors are playing something on the radio. It's an announcement that there is an imminent nuclear attack on Ohio and where you are. And you are led to believe for at least a few moments that everyone in that room is going to die in a horrific way. Take us back, if you will, to that moment, what that made you feel, why the pastors said that they did it, and what that changed for you in that moment. Mm -hmm. So 
I I was sort of kid for whom the ace was really important, and especially so this youth group had a complicated family situation. So it was somewhere that I felt safe in these retreats that we had been on were just really pleasant and fun and with adults I could trust. So going to this retreat with many other churches, I expected more of the same. And during the evening, when I, I believe we were supposed to be doing communion, so we were all already in a circle gathered and a member of one of the youth groups and a pastor came and brought in a boom box and there was just a report that there were nuclear bombs headed in our direction and we really only had limited time left. And I remember feeling shy, of course, and terrified. And, and there was also this kind of push to come up, get communion while you can. And normally, as a bit of a rule follower, I would have followed those rules as I would have stayed. But I was so petrified, I ran from the room, went to my bunk, and just prayed. And I prayed to God. I thought about my pets at home. I thought about my family. And then I heard the screams. And I heard screaming coming from the gathering place where we had been, and then echoing down the hall, coming closer to me. And, and I thought, okay, this is it. I'm about to die here. And then the, the other kids burst in and said, I can't believe it. Why would they lie about this? And that's when a different sort of shock set in. And we came to understand that this was an attempt to get us to consider whether or not we had been saved and think about in those last moments, well, won't you really want to be a Christian? And I didn't have words for the profound manipulation that was, but it did, I think, give me question marks, not about my own church leaders, but it did open my eyes that Sometimes for some people, getting more notches of people they'd saved matters more than what you might put them through to get them there. So if I'm hearing you correctly, you were in a situation where you were with a group of people that you had trusted. You had been with your youth group, and now you were interfacing with these other youth groups, and you were extending the trust that you had with your little community of youth group members to this wider community. And one of the first memories you have of extending that trust to this other group of leaders is that they abused that trust. And to use your word, they manipulated you in order to get notches, more Christians into the collection of Christians. I want to, when I read this portion of your book, it made me physically angry. I imagine it also made you incredibly angry. You mentioned that there were screams. You talk about one member of the youth group who threw a chair at the wall. There was real sense of palpable betrayal here. I want to try and be as charitable as possible to the leaders just for a moment. Let's do a devil's advocate. What in the world do you think they thought was the good that could possibly have come out of this? Honestly, and I didn't include this in the book, 
But later I did find a book of youth activities. And there was something like this in a book recommended for youth group. It did not tell people to lie outright. It was I used to imagine it. And they just took it a step farther. So I suspect a bit of it just comes from the poorly edited options that are out there to encourage people to lead other people. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Sarah Stancorb. She's a journalist who has written hundreds of reported articles and essays, which have appeared in numerous publications. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Disobedient Women, How a Small Group of Faithful Women Exposed Abuse, Brought Down Powerful Pastors, and Ignited an Evangelical Reckoning. Well, at this moment, I want to say thank you for your trust in me as an interviewer to start with something that I can only describe as a traumatic experience from your childhood. And I wanted to start there because I feel like this opens up for us the larger themes of your book, Disobedient Women. It is a book that again and again, in very patient and elaborate reporting, shows us the ways in which a mostly male leadership, but also with the help of females in various roles, for the sake of what they consider to be a greater good, will use tactics of manipulation, will use deception, will use even outright lying to cover up horrific and traumatic moments in the lives of children and those that are vulnerable. Now, as I say back to you what I'm getting from your book as the main themes, I want to say, have I got the basics right? And is there anything that you would add to or correct in what I've just said? Yeah, as I thank you for Mostly there. The, the other piece for me, and really the impetus for this book, is that so many of these stories would remain untold if not for groups of people, largely led by women who are taught within their own churches to be submissive and not speak up, that these folks found ways online and use the internet to expose what was happening within so many of these churches. And before that, people who had these individual experiences often believed it only happened to them or it only happened in their church. But seeing the breadth of it across the internet and through the voices of so many people started to reveal some of the underlying systemic issues that exist in many evangelical churches. I'm so grateful for that addition to my characterization of your book, Disobedient Women, because what I want to stress to our listeners is this is not a simple step-by-step story that you're telling. What really struck me was there are some hub points. So we could talk about the Gothard ministry, or we could talk about other churches that are mega churches that have become part of almost a branding or a platform for certain types of homeschooling or certain ways of thinking about relationships with the government. But even with these hub points that you talk about, what struck me was you can jump back and forth and see an entire set, an entire web, an entire network of connections that speak to what you're saying here. 
this practice of isolation, this repeated story that we can hear from the victims in various geographies about trauma and abuse, and the ways in which, as particularly the internet began to connect people, victims began to realize that they were not alone and that their stories matched other people's stories. So let's begin to dig into that. I know that you've been reporting on this for various magazines over the years, but what were some of the pieces that made you begin to think there's a larger story here and it's appropriate to tell that in a book? Yeah. So I started my entry into this world because I was a fairly mainline Protestant. was a story about a woman named Vicki Garrison who ran a blog called No Longer Quivering, and she had left what's called the Quiverful Movement, which encourages women to use their womb to create an army for God. So she had lived this life of submission to her husband's headship. She had many children. She multiple times risked her life to have more children. And there was an idea she picked up from the books that many women in this world read that it's okay for women, it's good for women to keep pursuing pregnancies, even if they die, well, then they're a martyr for God. And this idea of maternal martyrdom was so shocking and interesting to me. And Vicky's story was one of leaving it and then sharing other people's stories on her website. And on her website, I learned another new term, which was stay-at-home daughter. And that's a whole other thread within these communities where young adult women are encouraged to stay home under their father's headship before moving out when they marry their husband, always assumed to be a husband and fall under his headship. And that's the way it worked for me for years. I would meet one of these sources. I would learn their story. I'd learn a corner of this extreme worldview. But then for it to make sense, I would have to learn another piece. And then I'd interview new people, do another story. And after a while, this cascade just taught me more about evangelical Christianity in America than ever would have anticipated was a possibility. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to be speaking with Sarah Stancorp. She's a journalist who has written hundreds of reported articles and essays which have appeared in publications including The Washington Post, The New York Times, Vogue, Mary Claire, Glamour, and Vice, among others. Today we're talking about her recent book, Disobedient Women, How a Small Group of Faithful Women Exposed Abuse, Brought Down Powerful Pastors, and Ignited an Evangelical Reckoning. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org.
Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to be speaking with Sarah Stancorp. She's a journalist who has written hundreds of reported articles and essays, which have appeared in publications including The Washington Post, The New York Times, Vogue, Mary Claire, and many others. Today we're talking about her recent book, Disobedient Women, How a Small Group of Faithful Women Exposed Abuse, Brought Down Powerful Pastors, and Ignited an Evangelical Reckoning. I want to make sure, if you're just joining us for the conversation, that you're aware that we will be speaking about sensitive topics during this hour. And I would also note that our guest, Sarah Stancorb, has a condition called spasmodic dysphonia, which does make her voice a little quavery. So I would ask for your patience and your charity as you listen to our very important discussion. I want to pick up on something that we touched on in the last segment. You mentioned one of the early interviewees, Vicki Garrison, as part of the Quiverful movement. Vicki Garrison was one of several points where I saw a kind of light motif come up in your book, and that is a woman or a young woman who is oftentimes described in these evangelical circles as a spirited young woman decides that maybe she has discerned a calling to be a pastor and she wants to preach. And there's three or four points where you describe a young woman, a girl, saying this to either a male pastor or someone in her household, and the response is laughter, dismissal, and then I was really curious, then a reframing, maybe you can be a missionary. And what was interesting to me was that Vicki Garrison was told that her using her womb to repopulate the world with Christians was a missionary act. So I want to ask you to reflect with me about when this began to come up again and again, how do you interpret this reframing of you can't be a pastor, but you can be a missionary? Tell us about that. Yeah, so in, in terms of the missionary example within Quirrell, I think it's deployed because a position is elevated and it is something that women are able to be part of. Thinking about living your life in your home, homeschooling, pregnancy after pregnancy, breastfeeding on these endless cycles, to frame it as mission work elevates it. And it was also used, especially in books like those by Mary Pride, as a way of justifying the danger and the risk because mission work is esteemed many missionaries who are held up and even to a hotel. The heart of their story is a risk that they went through going into these uncharted territories with So for these mothers, that parallel gives them a way of having esteem for what they're doing, but also accept the risk because there is risk with any pregnancy. And then after many, there's just often complications. So that's one piece. But the women in the book who mentioned that they thought that they were having a calling or maybe they would become a pastor. Part of what was interesting to me was just, yes, they were told you should be a missionary or you should be a pastor's wife. 
there's an opportunity for leadership but still under the headship of a man. With the mission work, it's also interesting because there are women can have certain roles at home in their church. Maybe they can lead a women's ministry. Maybe they can run Sunday school for children, not men. But men in other countries, men of other races, that seems to be a little more open for women. So that was also of interest to me. The other part, though, was the number of these women who later in life showed the enormous leadership potential that they had and the amount of effort they put into helping the church and just how much was wasted because of their gender and because of that discouragement when they were young. And I want to highlight and make sure that our listeners understand when you talk about the leadership potential that was wasted and that is manifested later in their lives, oftentimes that leadership potential comes out in gathering and empowering victims of abuse or beginning to create movements of resistance or even creating the cause and gathering the materials for class action lawsuits against a pattern of abuse that stretches from Catholic churches to megachurches to mainline Protestant churches. Now, when I say it with that grand sweep, am I drawing with too broad a brush, or is it actually this rampant of a problem that we can look in almost any corner of Christianity in America today and find a well-oiled machine of abuse? So I wouldn't go as far as to say a well-oiled machine in every corner. There are churches that actually are doing the very hard work and working with outside of organizations to try to create as safe an environment as they can. There are a small group. I will say any institution, when you have people in power and the power of the institution is put above the safety of the people who reside within that institution, you have a lot of opportunity for abuse because then you also have people who are more willing to cover up crimes and cover up abuse in order to protect the institution. So I think for many years, people in Protestant churches waved this off and said, oh, that's the Catholics. Isn't it a shame? It's over there. It's not us. Where, no, really, it's pretty rampant and it can't appear in any church. And that's one of the reasons why it's so important to talk openly about this. That way, when there is something that goes wrong, the victim recognizes what happened to them was wrong. And there's a receptive ear that understands what channels they should use and those they need to report an allegation of a crime that a church is not the investigatory tool that should be placed in charge of these things because they have a conflict of interest. This was one of the moments in reading your book, Disobedient Women, that was a revelation for me. I just, I felt the jigsaw puzzle pieces snap together and suddenly big neon lights went off. And it has to do with, as you were saying, these support groups for survivors of abuse, and in particular, the Survivor Network 
of abusive priests or SNAP, which I had always associated only with Catholic priestly abuse. And I suddenly began to realize in your reporting that it has wings that are not simply focused on Catholic abuse, but also looking at abuse in the Baptist church, abuse in megachurches. And I realized that this network grew out of the violence done against Catholic victims, but then has become an encompassing movement to help and support and connect victims across the horizon of religious practices in the Christian traditions in America. As you began to see these connections, I wonder if you can tell us what you began to learn that was common among these survivors and how they began to support one another. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the initial um, analogies I saw over and over was how many of them on the Keiko really adored their church, really so much wanted to be good. And so being compliant, given the structure they were born into, was part of being good. And so that compliance that willingness to trust authority figures then made them very vulnerable. And their families, too, also trusted those authorities. So even if something did get back to their parents, too often those parents maybe didn't believe it or didn't believe it was as bad as it actually was. So that framework there was very problematic. Something else that just happens over and over again is if a story does surface, then that pastor is shuffled off. The reason for their leaving is not made clear. And so instead, it's maybe a bit of an apology. Maybe they'll apologize in front of the whole church and get a standing ovation for accepting God's grace for what they've done and admitting their sin. And then they're off to another church, and there's just not tracking. There's just not that trail, that paper trail that you would help would follow anyone in any other form of employment, but particularly one with so much trust and with an authority figure that a lot of people see as close to God on earth as they can get. And that's that. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Sarah Stancorb. She's a journalist who has written hundreds of reported articles and essays across a variety of publications, including the Washington Post, the New York Times, Vogue, Mary Claire, and many others. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Disobedient Women, How a Small Group of Faithful Women Exposed Abuse, Brought Down Powerful Pastors, and Ignited an Evangelical Reckoning. A moment ago, you were talking about some of the common features that we can find among survivors. I wonder if we can also flip that question. As you were doing this reporting, looking at these varieties of religious communities, did you surface some common features of abuse, some things that tend to show up again and again in these situations that maybe my listeners could benefit hearing about? That's an excellent question. So I, I think the the process of cover-up is something that does have some common threads. I think there are a number of churches 
where uh, the abuse was perhaps seen as a sin and the process of forgiving someone for their sin was elevated to a level that became the priority. So you may have an abuse survivor asked to meet with their abuser and to forgive them face-to-face because the direction of the care was toward the sinner, toward the abuser, and the interest in care was not evenly or not definitely not evenly, but in many cases not even remotely applied to the person who actually survived the abuse. So I think that's something that's very specific to a religious environment. Something else that really stuck out to me is I talked to people who maybe experienced neglect growing up or they had educational neglect or they had a horrible punishment that turned into physical abuse or I talked to other people who experienced sexual abuse. But across the board, these folks, because it happened within their church or because it was justified by what their families believed to be religious acts, they also dealt with spiritual abuse because their faith was used to excuse what happened to them. And so not only were they dealing with horrible situations, but they also believed that sometimes the person doing these horrible things was justified in doing it by God. And that creates a damage. The witnessing someone surmounting that hurt is really remarkable. And I understand why many people are not able to. I want to linger with where you ended there, this notion of surmounting the hurt and the incredible journey and effort that that takes. And I'm going to pick an example from your book, Disobedient Women. So you describe a young girl who is the normal babysitters are not available. So the parents get a babysitter from the church, a young man, and he ends up abusing sexually this two-year-old girl. And just, it's a, it's a horrific moment. And then the young girl reports this to her parents. It goes through the, the channels with the church. And there is this point that you just described where the parents are encouraged to reconcile with the young man. And you describe a moment when the now three-year-old young girl comes into the room, sees the young man sitting on the couch, and in terror, flees and hides under the mother's chair. And the mother describes being embarrassed and pulling the child out from under the chair and holding her, and then regretting that later as she's speaking to you. And what I was struck by in that moment in the book is just the journey that mother and that child are on to realize that their first reaction, how they've been conditioned to be forgiving, to feel embarrassment when the child reacts with appropriate terror to the person that abused her, like to then months and years later be able to say, and that was not a healthy reaction. It was so powerful and palpable for me as a reader. And I, I want to just, first of all, say thank you for capturing all of that journey, but also to invite you to maybe reflect on, as you were talking to your interviewees, how you worked with them and journeyed with them as they came to reflect in different ways on their abuse and their response to the abuse. Yeah. 
So that that example, and I'm a mother, so there a lot of these stories, I have to resist the urge to place myself within the story. This is their story. She resonates with anyone. The idea of your, your little one telling you someone touched them and they didn't like it. In the Palmer's case, the story you're talking about, they did report to the police before they told the church, and that didn't go over well. So they did have this thread to kind of reach out for people who, in the secular world, who should help them. But as she told me that story of her daughter going under the chair and then pulling her out, the amount of shame and regret in her voice, you, you could just feel there are a handful of moments in any life where if you had the chance to go back and do it all again, it would change everything. And I think that's that moment for her. And she sees it now, of course. Like she ended up part of the class action suit. She's at her kitchen table trying to find out who else. They sort of take, it's a unique process. People who experience trauma don't always tell the story in a straight line. But it's not follow chronology necessarily. So it involves a lot of just listening very, very carefully and then letting people rest and then going back and saying, okay, I made a timeline in your memory. Does this timeline match? Am I right? Do I understand your story correctly? And then saying, okay, now I have to get some evidence to back this up. And I will say people who have experienced abuse or people who have family members who have experienced abuse are extremely eager to prove the veracity of their claims. So I know other reporters, every step of the way they have to dig, and I do a lot of digging, but they just also come at you. And they, like, I mentioned this with all here's the base statement. I mentioned this thing I heard in church, by the way, I recorded it. Here's a recording. So it's it, that part of it is like witnessing people prove to the world that the horrible thing that happened to them really did happen. And absorbing that and doing my own life work just to make sure they did what they told me was accurate because memory can change. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Sarah Stancorb. She's a journalist who has written hundreds of reported articles and essays, which have appeared in publications including The Washington Post, The New York Times, Vogue, Mary Claire, and many others. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Disobedient Women, How a Small Group of Faithful Women Exposed Abuse, Brought Down Powerful Pastors, and Ignited an Evangelical Reckoning. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find more than 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. 
We're delighted today to be speaking with Sarah Stancorb. She's a journalist who has written hundreds of reported articles and essays, which have appeared in numerous publications, including The Washington Post, The New York Times, Vogue, Mary Claire, and many others. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Disobedient Women, How a Small Group of Faithful Women Exposed Abuse, Brought Down Powerful Pastors, and Ignited an Evangelical Reckoning. If you're just joining us for the conversation, I do want to note that we are speaking about mature subjects, and so please take care of yourself and others who may be listening in case this might be a triggering conversation. I also want to note that our guest, Sarah Stancorb, has spasmodic dysphonia, which means that sometimes her voice quavers. I would ask for my listeners to give us patience and charity as we continue with this very important conversation. In the last segment, you were talking about the ways in which you journey with these parents and survivors of abuse, and you made a statement where you you said, it's difficult sometimes to not follow the urge to put myself into their story. And at that moment, my ears perked up because in this book, Disobedient Women, you did make the choice at certain points to insert your story into the flow. Now, I want to make sure my listeners understand you're never re-narrating somebody else's story with your story. You're never intruding your story or overlapping it with the stories of some of these other victims and survivors. But I want to ask you about that decision. What was it like to place your story alongside these other stories? Did that scare you? And what did you gain from that? So uh, there were two reasons why I ended up in there. Initially, I planned to include a small thread about losing my own faith. And I thought it was important to have someone who was not an evangelical, someone mainline, Protestant, bumped into the evangelical world. And even just, I think I call it a sideswiping, that was enough for me to begin questioning everything. So I I wanted an entry point for people who didn't know this world, and I wanted them to kind of walk with me and discover all of these things that I have learned through reporting that I also did not know. I didn't want there to be that bar to entry. The other reality is right when I got my book deal, my father broke his hip, and then I became basically care coordinator for both of my parents, both had dementia. Um, it happened very fast. And at that point, I started reliving a lot of memories from my own childhood. My father was an alcoholic. He was constantly in a rage over something. It was scary growing up with him. So and having him as a daily fixture in my life, who needed me for his care and made those demands in a frightening way, it raised a lot. So I didn't intend for the stories to be in the book, but they split it out of me. But by the end, it helped me, and I hope this thread comes through to the reader. I also, I guess as much as I'm in there as your regular middle of the road, Protestant to help bring people in. I realize there are a lot of people who've experienced abuse outside of the church. So I think I wanted eventually to show this 
happened to me too. So if it happened to you, you have a lens to see all of this through, but also differentiate what I live with and what these folks grew up with because the spiritual abuse that they endured was different than what I grew up with. I had a dad with a lot of problems who maybe needed mental health services, a lot of other things. But I never thought that the way he behaved came from God. I never thought that he was my godly authority on earth. I didn't have that. And I hope that by using this story and sharing it, I hope I accomplish all of that. Well, there was an especially poignant moment for me in your book, Disobedient Women, regarding your relationship with your father. I'm not sure what age it occurred, and I apologize for not having that ready to hand, but you were given a blank card by your mother, and you were told to fill the blank card, and you puzzled over what you would write, and eventually you wrote a heartfelt message. It's hard being your daughter, but I want to forgive you, and I want to be in relationship with you, and you handed this to him. And he read it, and you described that he had a physical reaction. He wept, he hugged you, he thanked you. And then you summarize it by saying, and it was in that moment that I realized that my words could make a difference. It was your catalyzing moment as a writer. And so as you've been talking now about inserting yourself in the book as a way of giving a lifeline to those that may even be beyond the realm of spiritual abuse, but to say, this generalizes to so many other kinds of abuse. I want to ask you, as this book has come out into the world, have you seen your words making a difference around these subjects? And what has that been like? Oh, boy. So I've noticed the people in my social media feeds who experienced abuse are doing what I recommended in the intro, which was to go slowly. So they're consuming the book in bits and pieces. Some people have switched over to audiobook. So um, it's easier to read on paper, but they're finding a path through. It's daunting to hear from people that grew up in, say, one of these church or parachurch environments saying, I, I felt alone. I really, same old story that's been happening within the people in the book, among the people in the book. It, they thought it was just the um, or they thought people didn't understand. And how they know, people do. And if someone doesn't understand where they came from or what they grew up with, they can, they don't have to explain themselves in detail. If they don't want to. They can just hand them a book and say, read this, that you'll understand. So there's some of that. I also, and this happens to me regularly, but it's increased that I have multiple people with extensive argumentation of wide-scale abuse within a number of church communities or a full denomination in one case. And there's this desperate need for more stories. They need help exposing what's going on. And I'm a freelance writer, so... Land a massive expose is tricky, little alone, but I think it also shows the necessity of good people on the religion beat and good reporters 
just to keep raising this issue and keep making sure people understand what's happening in real people's lives. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Sarah Stancorb. She is a journalist who has written hundreds of reported articles and essays which have appeared in publications including the Washington Post, the New York Times, Vogue, and others. Today we're talking about her recent book, Disobedient Women, How a Small Group of Faithful Women Exposed Abuse, Brought Down Powerful Pastors, and Ignited an Evangelical Reckoning. There's a quotation in your book, Disobedient Women, from the founder of Focus on the Family Ministries, James Dobson. And I want to read the quotation in its entirety and then ask you to reflect on it, because for me, it was really a hinge point in reading the book. James Dobson says, Our children are not casual guests in our home. They have been loaned to us temporarily for the purpose of loving them and instilling a foundation of values on which their future lives will be built. And we will be accountable through eternity for the way we discharge that responsibility. Now, what struck me was that those that followed Dobson and Gothard and others took this sentiment of God loaning children and used it to create great harm. It also strikes me that we could read that quotation as a rallying cry to unearth the harm, to shed light on it, and to work actively, as so many in your book that you recount have done, to expose the abuse and to begin to bring healing. So I want to ask you about this quotation as a hinge point. How can we learn to read this sentiment that people like Dobson used for great harm as a means to rehabilitate and create good and healing? Well, I think a number of my sources would be skeptical of using Dobson for anything positive. I just give it in the discipline that he encouraged within their homes and them what they live with. But the idea of the way children are used in these communities, whether it was with Gothard and his encouraging people to reverse vasectomies and then parade all of these like miracle babies at conference on conference stages, or whether it's to establish homeschools and then the conferences where you or the businesses where you can also give people to consume other books that lead them straight down this Christian patriarchy path. So in a lot of ways, kids are used as an entry point and weaponized if people clustered into environments that are not good for them. That said, I think a number of my sources have left the faith, but there are people who will refer straight to the Gospels and say, rather than Dobson or someone that carries baggage for them, I and mean, the Gospels carry plenty of baggage for some people, but they'll think back to the depiction of Jesus that mattered to them and say, this is the crux of what I thought we were supposed to believe. And when they skim off, all they were taught and all of these ideas like complementarianism and blankish training and all of these things that cause harm and they pull that back some really aren't able to look to just the text itself that's supposed to be part of the foundation of their faith 
and they do find something there. There is something for them to hold on to. This comes out again and again in your book as you're reporting the words of your various interviewees. A phrase comes up again and again, I left the church, but I didn't leave Jesus. And that really struck me as I was reading through, and that speaks to what you're saying. And some do leave the church and leave Jesus as well in this story. But I want to return to something you said in your answer there. You talked about the way in which these children have been used, and in some cases, even weaponized. It struck me that a common tactic that we find from abusive community to abusive community is saying to someone in a vulnerable position, you are a part of my story, but your story does not matter. And what has really struck me about your work here in Disobedient Women is that this is not simply an expose, it is a returning of story to those whose stories have been robbed from them. And when I characterize it in that way, does that feel right to you? And and if it does, how does that make you feel? What do you think about that? Or if it's wrong, how would you say it in a different way? Well, um, I don't know that I've thought about it that way. I think part of what really got me interested in a lot of this is that people were writing their own stories in their own words and creating platforms for other people to share their stories in their own words. So they were able to go from a place where they have been silenced, a place where they like, they almost literally had no voice. They were not to speak up. They were not to tell the truth. To talk about it was gossip, and gossip was the same. And instead, they had space to really think through what happened to them and find words for it. For a lot of these folks, the idea of the word abuse is foreign. One of the groups that I talk about in the book that focuses on Christchurch and Doug Wilson, one of the things they do that they hope is of the most benefit to the people who reach out to them is just give them a, a list of pastors that may show you're dealing with domestic violence because those, that word, that terminology is absent from the vocabulary. So it's not just the stories, but it's giving words for what's been done and having a language where evangelicalism is very good at concocting new terminology as, as part of a, a language game almost that is played with an evangelicalism. But then that game excludes important terms that people need in order to actually understand the reality of their lives. This leads me then to attenuate my question, because earlier I was suggesting that it was you that was returning their voices and their stories to them. I heard very strongly in your answer that they were already re- discovering their voices and their stories. They were exploring and risking with new vocabularies. And so maybe the role that you have played here is a gatherer and an amplifier so that others might, and I think about the line from scripture, don't hide your light under a bushel, but rather put it on the high place so that others can see it. 
So I'm now re reevaluating and saying it seems like you're taking this work that's already being done and gathering it and putting the light so that others can see it and come to it and find their own stories and their own vocabularies. And when I say that to you, I'd ask you to reflect, how does that feel as a description of your work? Yeah, that feels right. I think I'm bearing witness in a very specific, time-consuming way, but I'm bearing witness. And I think for a lot of people, just, just the interview process and having someone deeply listen to them it, I've had people say this was life-changing, just being able to tell the story from beginning to end. So that's part of what I do. And I think, yes, I wanted people to see the whole gamut that I have been witness to. Because without seeing all these pieces, you can wave it off. You can say, oh, that's awful that happened at one time or that happened to that one person. You're not able to see the totality of it. And without seeing the totality of it, you're not able to appreciate exactly what these people, largely women, are up against and were up against, but are up against still. And that is the amplification. And that is why... I want to get this book in front of as many people as I can because these courageous women deserve to have their stories heard. Well, Sarah Stancorb, I am not going to mince words. Reading your book, Disobedient Women, was difficult for me because it was so raw and honest and because what you are reporting on is so tragic and so widespread. At the same time, your characterization just now of bearing witness, it rings through on every page. This book is artfully crafted from, from horror, and it leads us into a place of positivity and possible change and healing. I am so grateful for the time that you took to gather these stories, to listen carefully to these people who have been so hurt, to help in that moment of life-changing as they are gathering their vocabularies and learning to tell their stories again. Thank you for taking the time to write the book, but thank you especially for taking the time today to talk about it with me and my listeners. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. And David, you read this, this book so carefully. Thank you. We've been speaking today with Sarah Stancorb. She is a journalist who has written hundreds of reported articles and essays which have appeared in publications including the Washington Post, the New York Times, Vogue, Mary Claire, and many others. Today we've been talking about her recent book, Disobedient Women, how a small group of faithful women exposed abuse, brought down powerful pastors, and ignited an evangelical reckoning. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. 
And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.